Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to Enlightened Empaths, your community for the spiritually awakened, where we discuss, explore, and connect with fellow empaths, healers, intuitives, and seekers. Hello, empaths. We're so happy to have you join us this week. Our guest today is Dr. David Clark, who's president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association, PPDA, which is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to ending the chronic pain epidemic. Dr. Clark holds an MD from the University of Connecticut School of Medicine and is board certified in internal medicine and gastroenterology. His organization's mission is to advance the awareness, diagnosis, and treatment of stress-related and pain brain-generated medical conditions. You can learn more at nchronicpain.org, and we'll put that website in our show notes so you can be sure to check it out. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dave. We're really happy to have you here. Great to be with you. Thank you so much uh, for the chance to have a discussion with you. Well, let's start off by talking a little bit about how you came to be so passionate about this and a little bit of the focus on why there's such a need for this organization, especially in today's current society. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I started out uh, in my career very successfully in medical school. I won an award for excellence. Uh, I got great scores on the national board examinations. I was in a top residency training program. I had finished seven years of uh, formal training. Uh, So I was completely unprepared to encounter a patient. I didn't know the first thing about diagnosing or treating. This happened actually in the eighth year of my training. I was a patient referred to us from another university because they couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, You know, you've asked a gastroenterologist on your show, so I'm going to have to tell you that this patient was averaging one bowel movement per month despite taking four different laxatives at double usual doses. And we, you know, she'd been through all the tests and we did a very specialized test at my university and that was also normal, much to the shock of my uh, department chair and I. And I was doing her exit interview and I was telling her, you know, you're going to have to live with this and asking her about stress. And she'd been asked before, and she didn't really have any. Um, But I asked her about stress um, in the past, thinking maybe uh, two years ago when her illness began, something had happened. And she chose to tell me about the remote past, uh, 25, 30 years ago when she was a girl. uh, Her father had molested her. Uh, And not just once or twice, but it turned out hundreds of times. I had never encountered that information from a patient before. I had no training in what to do with it. Um, But I knew of a psychiatrist uh, at UCLA where I was in training that was also certified in medicine. She knew about these mind-to-body illnesses. So I had, oh, great, I've got something I can do for this patient except tell her to go off and live with it, never thinking for a moment that a psychiatrist was going to do anything for her physical condition. 
But I ran into Harriet Kaplan, the psychiatrist, a few months later in an elevator. And just to make conversation, I said, you know, whatever happened to that patient? And she said, oh, I haven't seen her in a few weeks. She's fine now. Um, Completely cured. Um, Not taking any laxatives. Bowel habit, completely normal. I was shocked. You know, I got off the elevator and I turned around and I said, Harriet, how did you do that? And she, you know, I caught up with her later and she explained to me the process that she uses. And I thought, you know, this is something I should know about. I'm going to run into a couple of patients like this from time to time. So we had her sit in with us in the GI clinic uh, and she was always able to find uh, ways to help us out uh, with patients there. Um, But it turned out that this was ended up being 35 percent of the patients I saw in when I got into private practice. And there wasn't any Harriet Kaplan in Portland, Oregon, where I uh, was in practice. And I ended up having to try to take care of these patients myself through mostly trial and error. It took me four or five years, um, but eventually my learning curve got to a good place. And uh, actually, at that point, I won the Doctor of the Year Award from a large HMO I was working for. And today we're 7,000 patients later that I've successfully diagnosed and treated. Uh, People like this with brain-generated symptoms comprise 40% of patients who go to a primary care physician. It is 50 million adults in the United States alone that have this. Uh, And they can be successfully diagnosed and treated if you know what to look for. That's a fascinating story. Wow. It makes me think about how we store emotions so deep down inside of us and that's the sacral chakra, which is which is the seat of sexuality. It's where we store a lot of trauma is in the bowels too. So it's always so interconnected and interwoven. That's it's mind blowing when science proves all of that, you know. Yeah, and we've got good science now. There are uh, several randomized controlled trials, which is the gold standard in scientific research. Uh, one of them that I love to talk about is. Uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association two years ago. And uh, they focused on back pain, uh, which is interesting. You mentioned a sacral chakra. I mean, that's that's right there, isn't it? Uh, so they uh, had 150 patients and they treated, uh, they divided them into three groups, two control groups and a group that got uh, what, what I call psychological pain relief therapy. And uh, the group that got the pain relief therapy, they'd been in pain for a decade on average. And their pain scores were four out of 10 on average. But after they got the uh, pain relief psychotherapy, their pain scores dropped to one on average, and the control groups did not. And two thirds of them um, got their pain scores all the way down to zero with just eight sessions of pain relief psychotherapy, just by getting into the emotions and the past traumas and uh, um psychological issues and bringing them into their conscious awareness. Um, it, it was dramatically beneficial. This is beyond fascinating to me because I'm a little bit obsessed with the mind-body connection with how we hold things in our physical shell that we may be trying to process emotionally. And, you know, hearing your story of how you started out in a very traditional track and to switch gears and and meld both of those fields together, the traditional medical with the 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 more I don't want to say it's esoteric, but it it's probably not really as celebrated in the traditional medical field what you're doing. You're right, and and that's a biggie. But do you find that stress, like prolonged stress, 
and trauma are the main catalyst for for this? Yeah, I have to say in the majority of my patients, and this was the, the biggest shock of my medical education, was finding out that stress when you were a child, what, what are today called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, can have a long-term impact. And you know, we, we obviously can't go back and change a person's ACEs that they experienced, but we can absolutely uh, intervene and successfully help people cope with uh, what has happened to them over the long term. And one of my patients, uh, she was ill from this for 79 years. Uh, when I saw her, she was 87, and she had been ill her entire life over a traumatic event that happened to her when she was eight years old. So, so it just shows how uh, long-lasting these things can be. Uh, that very first patient that I mentioned uh, with the severe constipation, nobody had touched her against her will uh, for 25 years and yet it was still capable of having this profound effect on her body. Yeah, and it, it makes sense. I mean, if and you, you know, listeners can go, you can Google your, your adverse childhood experience score. I think it's called the ACE score. That's right. And, and see where you come up on that. And that can give you some indication if you are dealing with old issues from your childhood. But, you know, I remember reading in uh, Dr. Bernie Siegel's book, Love Medicine and Miracles, he has a quote where he says, he always asks his patients who come to him with their, you know, initial cancer diagnosis, what happened to you five years ago? And he said, most of the time they could relate a trauma that had happened within about that five year range. And I think that's fascinating too. So we've got a lot to worry about. We got to worry about what happened to us in our childhood. We got to worry about what's happening to us now. And yet we see this coming up again and again. What what is the best method for people who are hearing this and going, no, well, that's not connected. I've had back pain because I was in a skiing accident. You know, my knee hurts because I'm 60 and I haven't been to the gym in 15 years. What would you say to people who have that type of response? Yeah, I mean, you have so much to unpack there. First, I have to mention that Bernie Siegel endorsed my first book. It's uh, the quote about it is on the cover. Uh, my first book is called They Can't Find Anything Wrong because I heard that from so many of my patients. So I'll, uh, I'll allow myself a plug for that. But you you're should. absolutely right. People are very skeptical that uh, stress alone could possibly uh, create these uh significant physical symptoms, people will say, listen, this is not in my head. This is real. And it absolutely is. I mean, the brain can generate uh, completely real symptoms, as, as you've already heard in some of these stories. Uh, the classic example is uh, phantom limb pain, which occurs in someone who's had an amputation, and they are feeling pain at the site of their missing limb, which is clearly not coming from the missing limb because the limb is not there anymore. It is generated by the brain. The brain is creating very real symptoms uh, that can be pain or it can be uh, other things like ringing in your ears or trouble swallowing or um, diarrhea, constipation, those sorts of things. So, but it's incredible how uh, powerful the brain is. Uh, one of my patients had a completely paralyzed stomach uh, from stress. Um, the, he couldn't keep anything down. And I know it was from stress because when we uncovered uh, what his stress was and helped him with it, um, all of his symptoms uh, completely vanished. So this is the the line that I take with patients who are skeptical. Uh, let them know that the power of the brain to create symptoms in the body is uh, is huge. And that if they are willing to let me explore with them, 
um, what stresses there might be in their life. And many of them, probably a majority of them, can be traced to uh, childhood experiences. And if we can have a conversation around what those might be, um, then we have an avenue for successful treatment. People can get better from this, uh, sometimes uh, dramatically. Um, one of the patients that, that I saw fairly early on that convinced me I was truly onto something had been hospitalized at Stanford University 60 times in 15 years. Uh, and they had no diagnosis for her. She was in such despair. You have to imagine um, having no diagnosis after 60 admissions to Stanford, a dozen specialists, one of their psychiatrists even interviewed her and could find no mental health concerns. Uh, and yet by knowing what to look for, I found the stress that was responsible for her attacks, uh, um, brought it into her conscious awareness. She was pretty much cured on the spot. Um, she left the hospital the next day. She called me a year later to say she'd gone the entire year uh, with no episodes of illness. Um, I don't I don't always get dramatic results like that. There, there are certainly people that need years of psychotherapy to achieve the same level of cure, but um, it shows you what's possible. Well, you had mentioned before we started recording about the the key part of empathy in all of this. And I'm just floored with the stories you're sharing because I've spoken with people over the years that have said they can't find anything, but I know how I feel. And what you're on just a, a general level, you're giving people their power back. You're you're validating that what they're experiencing, because many people I've spoken with over the years have who have come to me as an intuitive have said, I know there's something off. There's a physically this is happening. But without that validation, it's almost similar to the the reaction of people that have been in an abusive re relationship. They start to doubt their mental health. They start to doubt that they're on the right track or that there is anything wrong with them. So how how does the empathy piece tie in? Yeah, very important because the uh, emotions uh, and the traumas that uh, people are have suffered in their lives that can lead to these physical symptoms are usually quite repressed. Uh, you know, if they were, if people were consciously aware of them, uh, if they were able to put them into words, they probably wouldn't be ill. Let's, let's talk for a minute about that woman who was hospitalized at Stanford 60 times. She was having attacks of, because uh, she's a good example of the the empathy that's needed. Uh, she was having attacks of uh, severe dizziness accompanied by nausea and vomiting. They would just come out of the blue uh, between six and 10 times a year. And about half of them were bad enough to put her in the hospital because she couldn't keep anything down. So I'm doing my usual systematic assessment for sources of stress, including stress as a child. And sure enough, you know, she had big time emotional and verbal abuse from her mother starting when she was three or four years old. Her parents had divorced around that time. Uh, and unfortunately, she physically resembled the dad and, and the mother, for whatever reason, displaced all the anger she had at the dad onto this poor little girl and started, you know, just criticizing her and emotionally abusing her. And this continued throughout her childhood uh, on into her adolescent years. And it was still going on. Uh, she was the patient was now 50 years old. Mother was in her 70s and was still treating her in this appalling, uh, abusive way. 
Um, but the patient is telling me this in the same tone of voice that you would use to read a grocery list. I mean, there was, you know, she wasn't crying or screaming or throwing things at the wall or um, beating her fists on the hospital bed. She was just explaining this like it was uh, anything, you know, like bad weather. Um, so you needed some empathy skills to recognize that this was going to be vastly more troubling to her uh, than was apparent. Let's put it that way. So then, you know, later on in the conversation, she's telling me this uh, very striking piece of her medical history, which was that although most of her attacks took place in and around her home community, uh, which was near Stanford University, in fact, um, she would always get one of her attacks whenever she passed through a little town about 45 minutes from where she lived. And nobody could figure out what the significance of this was. I mean, the psychiatrist had certainly been aware of it, uh, but couldn't make any connections. I think because he, he didn't really investigate the uh, childhood stress, because it turned out the only time she ever went through this little town was when she was on her way to visit her mother, who lived several hours further down the road. Uh, so what I imagine, you know, you needed some empathy skills to figure out what was happening here, uh, that she's getting in the car, her husband is driving, she's going to visit mom, she's got this enormous emotional tension in the relationship with mom, she had to have that, uh, but again, needed some empathy skills to understand that. She's thinking about how horrible the upcoming visit with mom is going to be. The tension is building and building. And by the time she gets 45 minutes down the road, her husband is pulling the car over and she's vomiting all over the guardrail. So I'm explaining this to her as I think this is why you are having those attacks uh, in that little town. Uh, and again, some empathy skills needed to uh, figure that out. And she's not completely buying it. She's kind of going, oh, I'm not really sure about that. Because, you know, she, she had this emotions around her mom so repressed, she just couldn't make that connection. So again, the empathy skills called into play to find a way to explain this to her that would make it crystal clear. And my, my question to her then was, what happens if you drive 45 minutes in some other direction. You're not going to visit mom. You're going somewhere else. 45 minutes in the car, just like when you get sick, uh, but not going to that little town. And she thought about it. And that was her light bulb moment. I can still remember her looking up at the ceiling and going, oh my God, I can't believe it. Because she could drive 45 minutes anywhere uh, and she would not have any symptoms. Uh, Forty, She could drive an hour and 45 minutes. As long as she wasn't going to visit mom, she'd be fine. And that was what finally brought the, the level of emotion that she had into her conscious awareness, where she could use her considerable cognitive skills to uh, work on that. And that was enough. You know, I wish I could cure everybody like this. But for her, that was enough. She never had another episode. It's amazing. You know, it reminds me in one of the Gnostic Gospels, in the Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, if you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. You know, Jung said the same thing about our shadow side. I feel like this information is out there, and yet so few people want to really accept it, that, that words and emotions are just as powerful as fist and punches and all of the other stressors that 
people sometimes have to deal with in childhood trauma. Do you see a direct correlation in terms of the physical illness? Like, say, for example, you were raised in a perfectionist home where you had to be the A-plus student. Do those people tend to have migraines? Or if you were raised in a home where everything was pushed down and quiet and looked great on the surface, do those people tend to get Crohn's disease? Is, is there anything that's so cut and dry as that? Or is it kind of all over the place? Yeah, usually you don't see those direct connections. That's a great question. Um, you know, I've certainly looked for that in, to try to see if there's a connection between a particular stress and um, a particular physical symptom. And usually you don't see that. Uh, but it's a very important point uh, that you made that the, the level of stress uh, can be uh, highly variable. Um, my it, it took me a long time to realize that um, stress that was seemingly milder on the surface could be every bit as powerful uh, in the long term in terms of their impact on the person. So yeah, sexual and physical abuse uh, is clearly horrible and clearly has uh, long-term effects. Um, but you know, be, growing up in a perfectionist household or with a, a narcissist for as one of the parents or being in an environment where you don't get sufficient uh, emotional or physical support, um, all of those things can have the same long-term impact on a person. Uh, the uh, personality traits that can come about from it, the repressed emotions, the the presence of triggers, you know, people's situations or events uh, in your life today that are somehow connected uh, to the past traumas that can be a, have a triggering effect on you. Those are all long-term impacts of ACEs that we can successfully uh, diagnose and, and help people with. Uh, every once in a while, I do see a direct connection uh, in a person's physical symptom. There was a woman who uh, suffered an injury to her uh, her sacrum, in fact, uh, when she was four years old. And then 50 years later, when she was experiencing an extreme level of stress, the pain came back in that exact location. Um, there's a, a colleague uh, who wrote a book about this uh, uh, in Europe um, who talked about a patient who was experiencing pain uh, uh, over the right lower rib cage. And you know, nobody could figure out what that was, but it turned out that uh, when her father molested her as a girl, he would put his hand in that exact spot. So, you know, every once in a while you do find those kinds of connections, but it's a it's a small fraction. Do you see any correlation with how deeply protected someone has kept a memory? Or how, you, because you mentioned people will repress that, they'll, and a lot of people that have been in toxic or, or dysfunctional or whatever adjective you want to use to describe it, childhood situations, they've gotten very, very good at deflecting. They've gotten very, very good at compartmentalizing and saying, well, it happened, it's done, it's over, I need to keep moving. That's survival mentality. So do you, do you ever see a correlation with the depth of how deeply someone has buried something and the impact of your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the more, the further below the surface uh, these issues are, the more likely they are to express themselves via the body. Uh, you know, if they can't express themselves in words, they've got to find some other way. And a, a big part of the treatment for this condition is to help people first recognize what's going on and then be able to put it into words. One of the main forms of treatment of this uh, is called emotional awareness and expression therapy. 
and it's one of the main types of uh, pain relief uh, psychotherapy. But that's what the whole process is, helping people become aware of their emotions and then be able to put them into words. One of the, the really helpful techniques uh, is to write a letter to a parent or parents uh, who mistreated you in some way, not to mail it, just to write it, to put all your thoughts and feelings down about that person, both good and bad. Um, we want you know everything out there put into words. And the more you can put it into words, the less those thoughts and feelings need to be expressed uh, by your body. But before we get to that, and I want to, you know, that, that stage of writing the letter, we have to help people recognize what's going on. So I want to share one of the most powerful techniques I've uh, developed to do that. And it's a, a thought experiment, because a lot of people will tell me, oh, you know, I went through these things when I was a kid, and it really wasn't that bad. Other people have been through worse than me, and they seem to be okay. Um, and I want them to get a more accurate sense of what they experienced. So I'll have them imagine themselves as a butterfly on the wall of their childhood home. And they are watching a child they care about, either their own or somebody else's, uh, in that childhood environment and watching that kid try to cope for even just a week. And what is it like for them? Um, in my written screening questionnaires, I'll pose that as a uh, as a question. You know, if you learn that a child you care about was growing up exactly as you did, would you feel sad or angry about that? Uh, because if you would, uh, there's a good chance that those events are having a long-term impact. One of my patients was actually a um, Hollywood actress, and uh, I had you know a discussion with her because she'd been suffering physical symptoms in multiple locations in her body for 20 years. Um, and in, the stress in her life was that her parents um, fought with each other verbally and emotionally, fortunately not physically, but definitely verbally and emotionally. She was an only child. Uh, she was the peacemaker in that family. I mean, she was always trying to get her parents to stop you know, fighting with each other. Uh, finally, when she was eight years old, they got divorced. Uh, but unfortunately, they kept living in the same house. Uh, they slept in separate bedrooms, uh, but they kept living in the same house and nothing changed as far as she was concerned. But, you know, she would tell me about how bad this was. And then she would say, but it didn't bother me that much. You know, I'm over it. It's in the past. It's not a big deal. I don't think it could possibly be related to why I've had all these physical symptoms for 20 years. And then I said, okay, let's imagine you you are in that house. You are a butterfly on the wall and your beloved niece is in that house and your beloved niece is trying to cope with your parents for let's say a week while you watch her try to deal with that. Uh, what is that going to be like for you? And she just stared at me. You know, very verbal person, as you can imagine, lots to say. When I gave her that to think about, she just stopped cold and stared at me while she processed that idea. And then at the end of probably a couple of minutes, uh, she said, at the end of a week of watching that, I would shoot myself. Wow. And that was really the first time she recognized just how difficult it had been for her. And once people can see that, then I want them to also feel like uh, it took heroic perseverance on their part to endure that. So many of my patients have come through their ACEs with terrible self-esteem. 
And I want them to completely flip that on its head 180 degrees and realize that it takes a heroic person to come through an experience like that. And they should think of themselves in those terms. And if they can do that, um, and it takes time, obviously, but once they can get there and feel good about themselves for having been born in this like they were born on the far side of Mount Everest and had to climb to the top to get to be an adult. Uh, if they can feel good about themselves for having survived that, it has ripple effects in the rest of their lives that are very positive. And positive for future generations. That's something I'm really passionate about. You know, you can break that cycle if you can recognize it and heal it in your lifetime, which is so, so important. What advice or help do you have for people who go to doctors for help and they're just not finding the right doctor? Do they just keep searching? Do you have any questions that they should ask a doctor before they even, you know, pay the $75 copay and, you know, take time off work? It's exhausting to find a good doctor that's going to hear you. Yeah, I, I think a couple of ideas there. You know, clearly anybody with physical symptoms needs to be checked out to make sure that there's not a uh, organ disease or injury that's going on that's responsible for their symptoms. And once that's been done, uh, they should, you know, ask the doctor, do you think it would be helpful to me to investigate sources of stress as a possible cause of my condition? And, you know, usually a doctor who has completed their a biomedical evaluation is going to be sympathetic to that approach. Um, we have on the endchronicpain.org website a simple 12-item screening test that people can use. Uh, it's just you know 12 questions that are designed to look at your background and see um, if you're likely to have this condition that we call psychophysiologic disorders, a, a blend of psychology and physiology. And the more it's set up so that the more questions to which you answer yes, the more likely it is um, that you have um, this mind-to-body uh, connection. And if that's the case, there are abundant treatment resources available now. I mean, we have uh, some courses on the website that are designed for professionals, but we deliberately made them jargon-free uh, so that people with no professional training uh, can understand uh, everything that we're talking about. We've got a, a couple of uh, recorded conferences with international experts uh, talking about various aspects of this. There are a number of books that we recommend um, that can help people understand this. Uh, lots of different resources that I, I dearly wish I'd had available to me when I started in practice uh, that can help people figure this out. Fantastic. And I want to say, too, I completely agree with you about the generations, that if you can break the cycle of it has come down generation after generation of um, people getting mistreated and then mistreating their own kids, then you've done a wonderful thing. Yeah, that's truly heroic. Absolutely. So uh, two questions. And the first one is, if people are not manifesting the physical symptoms, is it a matter of time? if they haven't pulled that taproot out from the old childhood pain? Or is it just that some people develop more coping strategies or physical ways of processing that trauma so that it doesn't manifest as an undiagnosed, undiagnosable um, situation? 
Yeah, it can manifest itself in a variety of ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be a physical symptom. Uh, it can be in personality traits, uh, perfectionism, uh, low self-esteem, poor assertiveness, uh, a tendency to form relationships with people who are not healthy for you. Uh, for example, uh, if you've grown up uh, as a kid having to constantly focus on the needs of others in your environment and try to you know, solve their problems and, and meet their needs, it's not surprising you would end up with relationships where you're giving more than you're receiving, let's put it that way. Uh, so that it's also a, uh, can lead to people uh, trying to treat their long-term stresses with any of a variety of ways, sometimes uh, in the form of addictions, uh, not just to substances, but it can be uh, addictions to certain behaviors like food, work, sex, uh, exercise, uh, gambling uh, can be ways of coping. Eating disorders are another um, actual coping strategy that people have. They're, they're forms of, of self-treatment that people have. Cutting behavior is another one. That if you talk to people who cut themselves or otherwise mutilate themselves, they get a form of relief uh, when they do that. But it can be, the behavior can be traced uh, to these same kind of roots. Okay, let's say someone goes to endchronicpain.org and they look at the 12 questions and they're like, ooh, that's me. So they know they have to go see someone like you, but then they want to also partner that with a therapist. What therapist do they go to? Do you recommend psychotherapy, psychiatrist, a psychologist? Is there a, is there a one or another type of course of study for therapy that's better for chronic pain people? Yes, there absolutely is. Um the um, most widely prevalent form of psychotherapy in the United States is called cognitive behavioral therapy. And if you go to see a psychotherapist, that's mostly what you're going to get. But it turns out that that particular type of therapy is not sufficient for this condition. It doesn't pay enough attention uh, to uh, past traumas, to repressed emotions, uh, to you know these personality traits uh, that I was talking about. And it just isn't that effective. Early in my career, I sent a lot of my patients to um, mental health professionals uh, and uh, hoping that they would be able to see someone like Harriet Kaplan. But it turns out that uh, people like Harriet Kaplan, who was my first uh, instructor, uh, are rare. Um, fortunately, on the endchronicpain.org website, we have a directory of people who have studied this condition. Uh, there aren't nearly enough of them, but there are a couple of hundred, uh, both medical and mental health professionals that are skilled in this area. So that's a resource um, for people that don't have someone like that in their community. Uh, a number of them will see patients via telehealth. Uh, there's also a, quite a good app out there. Uh, it's called Curable, uh, you know, obviously smartphone or, or computer. Um, the people who founded that suffered from psychophysiologic disorders themselves. Uh, and they have consulted with well over a dozen international experts to design the, the program that they have on the app. So I'm a big fan of that one. And it's it falls in terms of effectiveness, uh, somewhere between a good book and a good therapist in terms of how much it helps people with this. Well, that's fantastic information. Yeah, I remember I went to a psychotherapist and because I'm a big fan of therapy and I wanted to, I grew up with a rageaholic mom and I wanted to unpack that. And he said, Oh, I don't like to deal with the past. I just want to focus on you in the present moment. 
And I was like, oh, I don't think you're the you're the one for me because it all all of that stuff that we experienced as child, as children, it echoes every day in our present. How can you not look at that? You know, it reminds me, you went to Yukon. I went to Yukon undergrad. I don't know if you remember when they built the Homer Babbage Library, they forgot to take into account the weight of the books. Oh no. So the whole time I was there, they were rebuilding it. <laughs> That's how that type of therapy reminds me. It's like a metaphor. You know, you you can't just look at the person as a building and not take into account the weight that they're carrying in form of, in, in the form of the books of their childhood stories, you know? Yeah, and that's that's such an important story because if you go to a therapist and you feel in any way that they are not benefiting you, it's perfectly okay to say, thank you very much, I'm moving on. And it may take uh, quite a bit of trial and error before you find a person who uh, resonates for you in a psychotherapeutic way. Um, and that's perfectly okay to do some shopping there until you find one that uh, you connect with. I mean, if you're paying your money for that, um, you should feel like they are speaking to you in a therapeutic way, in a beneficial way that's going to help you make progress. And it's not a problem at all to you know do a phone screening interview with that person um, and and do it you know two, three, four times until you find one that uh, you feel a connection with. Excellent advice. I think we can all look at people in our lives, whether it's personally or friends or family or something. This is something that is so interconnected in any circle of people. This isn't there's and it may be the the most well-adjusted person that you know is actually behind that screen. So is there a way to subtly or or gently suggest to someone that this might be an avenue to pursue if they're in a denial place or they're not willing to look at their own stuff quite yet? Or is that another component that people have to be to such a point where they're like, I'm, I'm out of, I don't know what to do from here. Yeah, I mean, not everybody is ready to uh, go into these issues. Uh, when I meet them, it's, there's a small number that say, you know, doctor, I, I think you're right about what's causing my symptoms. And I appreciate that you've brought up uh, these past traumas for me, but I am just not ready to go there at this point. And, you know, I have to accept that. I have to say, look, I'm, I'm here when you're when you are ready, you know, come back. Let's have a discussion um, and take some time to uh, think about these things. And until um, you reach a point where you think uh, you can begin to experience it, because, you know, the emotions are powerful. Uh, it's not unusual when I've first had a discussion with people and we've brought a lot of these repressed emotions into conscious awareness that people get temporarily worse. Uh, it's, it's a minority of my patients that that happens to, and it is only temporary, but uh, it's a measure of the power uh, that these emotions have uh, in our bodies. Um, and it also signals to people that they're on the right track and that they're going to get better um, once we start having these discussions. And the example you gave of the person who was 79 and had carried that that entire life, I, I really believe it's it's not going to go away. It's just going to keep circling around and, and keep showing up until you decide to pull it out or, or at least give voice to what it is. Yeah. I mean, that patient, um, it's a fascinating story. She grew up on a farm uh, in a rural Rocky Mountain state. And there were several kids. She was the oldest. Uh, there were several kids in the family. A baby was born, making it five kids. 
Uh, and she was at the age of six put in charge of the baby, um, you know, fed it, changed it, slept with it, played with it, um, you know, just like another six-year-old would play with a doll. Two and a half years later, tragically, uh, the toddler developed appendicitis and died. And of course, you know, she felt 100% responsible for that. She went into shock. She, uh, at the funeral, uh, an uncle, unfortunately, said that, uh, look, she's the only one in the church who isn't crying. Uh, and her guilt level just went off the scale when she heard that. Uh, and she remembered that detail from the funeral uh, 79 years later. She's telling me this um, in my office about what the uncle had said. She started developing stomach pain very soon after that. Um, and it carried on. And this event affected her whole life. She took care of other children on neighboring farms. Uh, she became a pediatric nurse. She had four kids of her own. But all this time, she's having these stomach pains uh, on a regular basis. Um, and finally, you know, we're, you know, talking about since she had the pain since she was eight years old, it's a very simple question. Did anything bad happen to you when you were eight? And that's when she told me about the, the death of this toddler. Um, but 79 years of going to doctors uh, to find out what was wrong with her, nobody had inquired about this. So what I did was I had her write a letter to the deceased toddler just to say, you know, what her feelings were about the toddler, uh, her regrets, you know, how she felt about uh, not being able to save uh, the baby's life. She didn't get 100% relief from that, but 60 or 70%, I think, would be uh, a fair estimate. Just really quick, years ago, I was teaching a self-contained classroom of kindergarten through second graders, and a lot of behavior issues, a lot of um, difficulty, you know, for, for little tiny people. And there was a little boy who could not self-regulate in any way, shape, or form. And as the year progressed and the, the behaviors escalated, and then he told me one day, he said, you know, it was my fault. And I said, well, what was your fault? And he said that my brother died. Oh. And he had a, he was maybe four at the time, and his little brother had drowned. And the people had all been, it was not a, a great situation, but they blamed him and said, you should have been watching your brother. Oh, no. And this poor little boy was so, the only way I can describe it, was so alone in the world with that pain. And... And it, and I, I just, I think of him over the years, because this was decades ago, of A, why, excuse my mouth, why in the hell would anyone do that to a child and put that responsibility when it was they were being, they weren't watching that little boy that, that did drown, but also did he ever find the help he needed to, to realize that it wasn't, he was a little boy, it wasn't his fault. And yeah. I, I'm sure you see that constantly. Yeah, and I see these, these terrible stories in people that if you just met them casually, if they were, you know, your workplace colleague or your neighbor or a family member, uh, that you would never guess the burdens they were carrying around. Wow. Okay, I just want to wrap up with, I, I got an email from a listener a couple of weeks ago, and she's in a really difficult marriage, and her husband is just creating a tumultuous life for her children and her. And she's working to get out of it. She's saving up money and all of that. But 
I just want to leave people with a little bit of hope for anyone who's in this situation right now. It's not their childhood. Maybe they're, they've married someone who's creating this, this drama and trauma. One of the things my therapist said to me was that because my, my dad was so lovely and loving and honest about my mom's <laughs> rage issues. And he would always say, it's not you girls, it's mom. You know, she's having a bad day or she's a little touched in the head. It's nothing to do with you. That that's why my sisters and I are, you know, so quote unquote normal and, and healthy today. Is that true? Do you believe that's true? That like, if this listener who sent me this heartbreaking email, if she's just honest with her kids and gives them voice to talk about it and cry about it and share about it, that they won't have to carry this chronic pain with them? Does it does it take just one parent? Yeah, it frequently can take one individual who is positive towards you, who believes in you, who tells you that your feelings are valid uh, and that they are not your fault. Um, and that can make a huge difference. So many of my patients, um, they had a, a parent, a grandmother, a teacher, a neighbor, somebody who believed in them, somebody who made them feel good about themselves. And uh, it turns out that makes a huge difference to how resilient a person is uh, with respect to the, uh, the harms that are going on in their environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I should also add that for anyone who's in a uh, difficult or abusive marriage, uh, it's not unusual for a person to have chosen a partner like that because of the adversity that they suffered as kids, let's put it that way. And if you can begin to see that your childhood environment was, again, like being born on the far side of Mount Everest, and give yourself um, credit uh, for the heroic perseverance you needed back then to, to come through that, that puts you in a much better place uh, to cope with the difficulties you're having in your life at the moment. So beautiful. Now, your organization has an annual conference. Can anyone attend that or is it yes. just? Okay. Yeah, we're, we're hoping to have it. Uh, we're just in discussions about possibly having it uh, live rather than 100% virtual. The last two conferences were recorded so people can um, get those and, and look at the international experts we have is 24 hours of material between the two conferences and we're looking at possibly uh, having a live conference in boulder colorado next october next october perfect thank you so much dr dave this has been absolutely eye-opening and validating and illuminating uh, we will definitely post the links to your websites and your books and our show notes and on our social media pages uh, and we'd love to have you back on this has been really really great Thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share these ideas with your listeners. Thank you for the work you're doing, because this, this is causing such an amazing ripple effect in so many communities, I'm sure. Not only the personal, but that collective. So thank you. You're very welcome. Yeah, 15 years ago, we uh, barely knew that uh, there were other practitioners out there doing this work, and uh, it's just exploded since then. So thank you very much for your support. Wow. That's great. I'm so excited to meet you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, please check out nchronicpain.org and learn more. In the meantime, always remember to show up, do great work, and share your light. Take care. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. 
At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.